The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Laura Borgelt. She is an Associate Dean of Administration and Operations at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy and Professor in the Departments of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. Dr. Borgelt's teaching, practice, and research focuses on patient safety and women's health with an interest in educating providers and patients about medical cannabis. I heard her speak at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting in Chicago last fall on the use of cannabis in medical nutrition therapy. She has investigated the potential effectiveness and risks of cannabis and has provided evidence-based presentations to medical nursing pharmacy and dietetic groups nationwide. She has served on six different working groups regarding rulemaking in the state of Colorado involving consumer safety and social issues. And through her training and experience, Dr. Borgelt has extensive knowledge of cannabis with regard to its pharmacology, therapeutic effectiveness, and potential risks. Welcome, Dr. Borgelt. Thank you, and thanks so much for having me. I thought your talk was one of the best at the Academy meeting, and there is so much interest today, especially as more states are bringing on access to medical cannabis as well as recreational use. And I think Colorado certainly is a leader in the nation with regard to dealing with how do we do patient education I thought your individual story was interesting, however, so why don't you tell our listeners how you became involved in medical cannabis knowledge and education? Sure. My story is typical, I think, of some providers where we end up going into an area we least expected. I worked for many, many years in a family medicine clinic, almost 20 years, and I'm going to say now probably seven or eight years ago, one of our trainees had been seeing a patient who was breastfeeding and smoking a joint per day. And I am a real passionate person around women's health, and so when this patient came forward, I was very interested. And the really interesting part of the story to me was that the doctor told the patient that using marijuana once a day while breastfeeding was completely fine. And really it surprised me because on the one hand I thought, well, I'm pretty sure that's wrong, but I really didn't know if it was right. And because of that, it led me to investigate what were the effects of cannabis, and in particular for this patient, in breastfeeding, but also pregnancy, and then that kind of has expanded now into many different conditions and areas and public health and and patient safety issues. And so it was really through that opportunity and this one case coming forward and then some of my colleagues hearing my report back to the doctor about what the effects were of cannabis and them recommending me to give a talk here, and then pretty soon you're the expert. So right. It was somewhat unexpected, but really has been an interesting opportunity for me, and I feel like as a medication expert, it's an opportunity for me to really educate around what are some of the risks and benefits of, of cannabis and what patients might it be an option. Mm-hmm. Well, many dietitians are interested in this 
for several reasons. The first being there are many edibles out there. So, of course, we're typically called on to discuss food and food ingredients and how they might affect the body. But also, we heard a physician speak at one point who said, nausea is worse than pain. And if we have a tool in the toolbox that can reduce nausea, especially associated with chemotherapy and cancer, shouldn't we be using it, especially when we are weighing risks and benefits? And you spoke a lot about that and all of the gray areas out there where we really need controls and some sort of oversight. So let's back up just a tad, and I'd like for you to explain the physiology of how we interact with this substance. We have cannabinoid receptors throughout our body. What are they good for, and how does marijuana affect us? Great question. Yes, as you just alluded to, we do have what is called the endogenous cannabinoid system, which means we have endocannabinoids that are produced within our own body, and they will interact with cannabinoid receptors. And the goal of the production of these endocannabinoids and the receptors that they attach to is really to keep the body in balance. It wants to produce or not produce these endocannabinoids so that the body can have a variety of different physiologic processes. And so where we find a lot of these receptors, as you just alluded to, we see receptors in the gut. We see receptors in the brain, and in fact, these CB1 receptors or cannabinoid 1 receptors are very prevalent in the nervous system and especially the brain. And so we have many, many different functions that our body does as a result of this endocannabinoid system. And I often liken it to the CNS. It's kind of a parallel to the central nervous system where we have these receptors and neurotransmitters really throughout our entire body from head to toe, where the endogenous cannabinoid system is very much like that. Endocannabinoids are produced in the body. The two that we know the most about are anandamide and 2-AG. They're produced throughout the entire body, and we have these receptors throughout our entire body. And so when these endocannabinoids are interacting with the receptors, different processes can occur. And you alluded to a few of those already in terms of potentially decreasing pain sensitivity or providing changes in our appetite or the way that we handle nausea. Mm -hmm. And there are so many products on the market, and I think there isn't a lot of consumer education. Colorado is certainly the leader, and you shared with us some of the wonderful websites that are available through the Colorado Department of Health, and I'll make those links available to our listeners, but things that we don't think about. So I liked the way you described how there could be dysregulation or deficiencies in some of our neurotransmitters, and relating that to how marijuana might have the same effect in our body. Are we having dysregulation where marijuana could help? But at the same time, do we have a situation where too much goes over the line and it can impede our functioning in a negative way? Right. Yes. And so let me just back up for just a a minute because I want people to be clear that our endogenous cannabinoids are not as potent as the exogenous cannabinoids that we see with marijuana. And I think that's an important differentiation because something like anandamide, which our body produces, is not as strong as the THC that we see in the cannabis plant. As a matter of fact, THC is hundreds to thousands times more potent. And so when 
we are using THC to compensate for a potential deficiency in anandamide, we are getting something that's hundreds to thousands times more potent. Now, when someone is truly deficient, that may actually replace it in an appropriate context and bring that body back into balance, as I alluded to earlier. However, there can be situations where people actually are pretty healthy and don't have deficiencies or imbalances. And so when they use THC, they have extreme effects. Mm-hmm. Some of the conditions that we talked about at the meeting, and I'll just mention here as well, is for something like epilepsy, for example, or movement disorders, there can be dysregulation or deficiencies of some of the neurotransmitters that would be important for that. And so in that case, if we can offer an exogenous solution, something coming from the outside in, it may help bring that body back into balance. And so something like movement could be helped. Similarly, with something like appetite or or nausea, there may be an imbalance or a dysregulation of the body's own receptors. And so cannabis could be used as a potential option to help bring that body back into balance. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned that THC was thousands times stronger than the naturally occurring or endogenous cannabinoids that we have in our bodies. When we travel to Colorado or any of the other states that allow sale of these products, the consumer is really in a no man's land in terms of the professional who is selling us these products. And I use the word professional loosely because as you explained in your talk, there's no regulation requiring that the person selling you or telling you something about these products has any real education or knowledge to be the person who is selling them. It's not like you're dealing with a pharmacist at the dispensary. You're dealing with someone who really has voluntary education required. So how does the consumer know which products are best for them? A very good question, and it actually varies from state to state. So, for example, in Colorado, the bud tenders, that's the professional that you were alluding to behind the counter, the bud tenders may have a high school degree, they may have a Ph.D. in botany, but they don't have necessarily any sort of medical training. In other states, such as Connecticut and a few others as well, they're actually, those states have opted to have the cannabis dispensed through the pharmacy. And so there would be a pharmacist that would be monitoring that and dispensing that, and then also looking at the other medications that someone is taking. One of the issues, at least in Colorado and several other states now, is that we have both recreational and medical marijuana available. And the marijuana is sold at the same location, whether it's for recreation or medical purposes. And what delineates that, to some extent, is the dose that someone could purchase, especially for the edible products. However, if I'm a consumer here in Colorado and I'm going to a dispensary, I could be going there for a medical purpose and the person right behind me could be coming in for a recreational purpose. So there's differences also in the way that the consumer is approaching the cannabis that's available to them. Mm -hmm. And Colorado, you mentioned, has just instituted a law that will require no more than 10 milligrams in each demarcated piece of an edible. And I, I want to talk about edibles. We should talk about how we get the drug into our body. So it's we can smoke it, we can eat it, or we can use some kind of skin application or suppository even. But it's the edibles that I find most problematic because we don't know how much of the active ingredients we're getting, number one. And number two, 
we can have a delayed effect. So you you brought up the idea of, you know, who can eat just a bite of a peanut butter cup, right? right? Not me. (laughs) Not me either. So before you know it, you can have a dose that puts you over the line of having, say, a pleasurable experience to one that becomes a little more uncomfortable. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, and when we look at these formulations, something that is smoked or vaporized, the onset of that is really within seconds to minutes, and it may last one to three hours. So it's a fairly short-term dose, and it can be modified relatively quickly. However, when we look at edibles, the onset of the effect can be anywhere from 30 minutes to more than two hours. And so people who are consuming edibles often will take a bite or a piece or a portion of an edible and wait a few minutes or seconds, depending upon how how willing they are to wait, and take another bite. And then, you know, wait a few more minutes and take another bite. And pretty soon they have over-consumed and they are bound to have pretty significant side effects or can have significant side effects. We've had things like paranoia and real anxiousness that have actually led people to go into the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And the other part about this is not only is the onset delayed, but it's also the duration of effect. So the duration of effect can be anywhere from four to eight hours. And so this particular dosage form, an edible, really is not as reliable as some of the other dosage forms that we have. The second part of this story that's a little bit more complicating is that the effect that I would have could be very different than the effect you could have, just simply because of the physiology of our body. And then a third thing to add to this is that the effect I have today with a piece of a brownie may not be the same effect I have tomorrow with a piece of a brownie. And that has to do with my own physiology and the way that I'm metabolizing it. So there are a lot of unpredictable factors that go into consuming edibles, and it really becomes for me a red flag in terms of people who are consuming edibles, especially if they are naive to cannabis. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Laura Borgelt. She is a pharmacist, Associate Dean of Administration and Operations at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy, and Professor in the Departments of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado. Well, I'd like to talk about some of the things that you have heard, you know, some of the misconceptions. For example, it's natural, it's a plant, it can't hurt us. And then also, as you mentioned, some of the negative effects that don't seem to be consistent among populations. So it really leaves us vulnerable and very much, I think, dependent on some kind of regulation like Colorado is doing at least 100 milligram limit of THC on per packaged edible, for example. So talk to me a little bit about how you counsel people about its use. If somebody wants to try it for one of the indications or possible indications, so could be nausea. We had a question at the conference about autism, about post-traumatic stress disorder, MS, irritable bowel disease. What do we know and what do we need to know? Mm-hmm. So I think really the, the first place that I start is making sure that the patients have connected with a provider that can really evaluate their medical history and be able to recommend the cannabis product. And I think that's a real important step because I do think that 
patients need to be communicating with not only their cannabis provider, but also their primary health care provider, and maybe even a specialist, if that's the case, if they're trying to treat IBD, for example, they'd want to talk to their gastroenterologist. And so I think it's really establishing that relationship to make sure that cannabis is a viable option for them. We do have many effective FDA-approved medications. I really consider cannabis to be a third, fourth, fifth, more of a last-line option at this point simply because we haven't really been able to investigate it as much as we'd like. We do have a national report that came out at the beginning of 2017 from the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, and they evaluated in this report hundreds of articles to look at the evidence and determine whether or not cannabis or the cannabinoids, you know, those parts of the plant, whether or not they could be effective for various conditions. And really the three that rose to the top in terms of conclusive or substantial evidence was chronic pain in adults, symptoms of spasm that are related to multiple sclerosis or MS, and then antiemetics in the treatment of chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. For some of the other conditions that you mentioned, there is less information. I will say that there is a growing amount of information for something like IBD or epilepsy. And I see more and more what I would consider more observational studies where we're asking questions about people using cannabis and what are they experiencing. And so there are emerging conditions that I think we'll see more and more of. But we know when we look at the landscape across our country, every state has determined the conditions for which cannabis will be approved. Those conditions don't often have the evidence that we would like to see. (laughs) And they're Mm -hmm. often going on either limited evidence, insufficient evidence, or anecdotal evidence. And that is a difficult way to form policy. Yeah. So I think it's this balance of we really want, we know that there's physiologic reason that cannabis could help. We know that there are risks involved with it. And now we're trying to create policy to help support people with these conditions that can be very, very detrimental and difficult. And so it's a balance, and I don't really have a great answer. Yeah. Well, if I understood the lectures correctly at the conference, there are two main components, THC versus CBD. And one of the dietitians had made a comment that she thought that CBD was going to be sold readily for pain. Do you want to just touch on briefly about the two major components that we're talking about having pharmacological or physiological effects and what we should be at least aware of? Sure. So I think it's important for people to understand that there are actually more than 100 cannabinoids in the cannabis plant. Mm. THC is really the psychoactive component, the most potent, the one that we talk really the most about because that's the one that we've known for years. CBD or cannabidiol is another component that is non-psychoactive and we believe may have some effect on things like inflammation or pain. In some conditions, using a combination of THC and CBD can be helpful. There are other components such as CBN or cannabinol, which is being investigated right now for insomnia. So I think we're going to see more and more of these cannabinoids being researched, but right now the two that are most prominent are the THC and CBD. Mm -hmm. Well, and all of the ways in which the plant is produced also, I'm sure, influences its compounds. 
just as our food is influenced by growing conditions. I belong to the Beyond Pesticides Board, and one of their past issues looked at all the different states, what the regulations were, and then if there was any kind of assurance that the end consumer might have to make sure that that plant was not sprayed with a pesticide. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, you know, as we talked earlier about the pregnant woman, let alone we don't really know about the full effects on the developing brain of the fetus, but what about all of the pesticide residues that could also be present on the plant? But because it's not approved federally, we don't have the USDA's National Organic Program certification allowed to be applied to the growing of the plant. Some states have mandated testing for contaminants and pesticides, but then again, it's determining well what level and which things should be tested. I will say that there has been a lot of concern from the public health perspective about potential contaminants, pesticides, all of the different things that are not only sprayed, but used throughout the entire growth process. And this is just as important for our food as it is for any plant-based medications that we may be using. And so I think you raise a very good point about the safety perspective that doesn't have a lot of regulation at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Another concern that you raised that I've heard in the past at different health conferences has to do with the age at which we're exposed to these compounds. And it seems to me that you mentioned that age 25 seems to be an age below which it's probably a good idea not to be exposed to different kinds of drugs, whether they be alcohol, tobacco, marijuana, you name it. Particularly with marijuana, which we know can have such significant impact on the brain, we're really trying to promote a message that we want to encourage full, healthy brain development before using cannabis. And of course, we have kids with retractable seizures at age two that are having hundreds of seizures per day. And that's a very different context because the brain at that point has already had a lot of impact. When we're talking about what I'll say our healthy population, we really want to encourage them to wait until that brain is fully developed, which is age 25. Some of the things that we've seen in the studies in terms of long-term use have been some altered brain development, some potential cognitive impairment, especially in terms of making choices, and then also diminished life satisfaction and achievement where there are things like adolescents not graduating from high school or college at the same rate. And so there are some concerns both physiologically but also socially that we see happen, especially in our adolescent population. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing to know. And again, I'm going to go back and just give kudos to the Colorado State Department of Health because they have really good patient education materials in that area. The other thing that I thought was interesting that you brought up was the role of marijuana in terms of potential weight gain and that how we store the compounds in marijuana in our fat tissue and it could be increasing lipoprotein lipase activity and fat storage. So there's something that I had no idea would even be an issue to discuss. Well, it's interesting because one of the most long-term uses of cannabis has been to increase appetite. And there's kind of, you know, these two things. So you've got this physiologic process where cannabis, and in particular THC, is acting on the CB1 receptors of the brain, which then affects ghrelin, which is one of our hunger hormones. That's kind of on the one side. And then the other side, we have a lipophilic compound, which means that it 
is stored in the fat. That's why it loves the brain so much because the mm. brain is a lot of fat. But even once it's used, the marijuana will actually stay in the body for days or weeks depending upon the user. And so when people use cannabis, especially if they're a consistent user daily or maybe even every other day, they may test positive for marijuana days or weeks after their last use. And that has to do with the fact that the marijuana is retained in the body in the fat. Very interesting. And I'm going to provide a link for our listeners to the National Academy's report so that they can do their own research, which I think is really important. We live in such an interesting political climate. I don't know what's going to happen nationally with this product, but I am concerned that our research has been so limited. In fact, one of the points that was made during your presentation was that there's only one place in the United States that produces research-grade marijuana, and that's the University of Mississippi. Yes, and that's where that is really affiliated with NIDA, which is our National Institute of Drug Abuse. And so a lot of the research that's been done in cannabis in more recent years really has been in the context of abuse and not necessarily medical use. We see a few more studies happening now. We've got some that are ongoing here in Colorado as well. But really, for me, it's also a concern because not only is the potency much less with that marijuana compared to what's available commercially, the supply is also very difficult. And so there are several issues that come into play with that. And I, and I also hope that in, the, in this context we'll be able to move at least the research piece along mm-hmm. so we are more easily able to evaluate the potential effects of cannabis for patients who may want to consider it. Exactly. We just have a minute or two left. Is there something that you would like to bring forth from your presentation that I neglected to ask? I guess I would just say maybe two things if I could. I think one of the things that I often say, and I've said this in the conversation, was that the context for medical use and recreational use to me is very different. In the context of medical use, you're really assessing a risk and a benefit, and you're really trying to assess whether or not the benefit of a cannabis would outweigh the risk that it might have. And to me, that's really the context of any drug that we might consider using for a health condition. In the context of recreational use, it's much more about intentional impairment, and so therefore it becomes much more of a risky proposition in my mind. And I think it's we end up, I think, in many ways mixing these two. And while people often will use them <laughs> medically and recreationally, I think it's important to understand that the medical use, when we're evaluating these conditions and trying to research it better, we're really trying to find what is that true benefit risk that we might be able to provide in the medical context. Mm -hmm. So that's one. And then the other one we alluded to a little bit earlier in the program, which is really for people who are considering cannabis or want to talk with cannabis about their patients further, I think it's really important to talk about it and to communicate with providers about that they're considering it. How would this look with my other conditions and or medications I am taking? What does this mean for me if I have access to this and and decide to do that? And I think that communication piece is really important. Mm Mm-hmm. The other piece that was brought out very clearly in your presentation, which I greatly appreciated, was being able to have this discussion with our clients and patients without judgment. People are seeking relief from pain and discomfort, and shouldn't we as healthcare providers do as much as we possibly can to help them find relief? So I appreciate coming to this subject from a place of compassion as well as education and insight, which is what you've brought. So thank you very much for that. 
Well, thank you so much for your comments, and I couldn't agree more. Well, in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Laura Borgelt, pharmacist, Associate Dean of Administration and Operations at the University of Colorado Skaggs School of Pharmacy and professor in the Departments of Clinical Pharmacy and Family Medicine at the University of Colorado. Thank you so much, Dr. Borgelt, for carving out time for us today. Thank you, Melinda. I really enjoyed it.